Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast, Land and People. I am Melissa Kimera, and I'm a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. And I am Clay Trowernick. I think I've been telling my telling everyone is the simple. I'm a fire scientist because it's way easier than what my real title. But I'm an extension specialist, faculty at the University of Hawaii. Manoa in the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management. I think we should definitely do the caveat thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the views and opinions expressed <laughs> here do not reflect those of our employers or of, of ourselves or of our guests or our funders. Well, they do represent our own personal opinions. They're the, no, the views expressed here are our personal opinions and they're not, you know, they yes. don't reflect the views of our, of these institutions which we work for. And so, so our guest is Katie Kamelamela, who I've known for a long time. Well, Dr. Katie. Dr. Katie. I've known for a long time because we both had the same graduate advisor. Yeah, so Dr. Katie Kamelamela is an assistant professor at the Arizona State University. Um, she lives over here on Hawaii Island. She's amazing. I mean, Clay had been telling me about Dr. Katie for a while. And the reason I sort of just latched on to (laughs) Dr. Katie here is because she has been putting out amazing, amazing information um, just about, you know, different personal and scientific perspectives about what's unfolding, what is still unfolding um, as of this uh, recording, you know, with the fires on Maui. And I just thought, gosh, she's so sanguine. She's so just thorough and she knows so much both about the ethnoecology of Hawaii as well as just what she's putting out there about the fire. So Dr. Katie's research focuses on historical and contemporary Native Hawaiian forest plant gathering practices. It's like exactly about relationship to place, like through the plants. And it's this kind of where we've all also share our our research interests and, you know, my kind of veered off a little bit more towards fire, how fire connects mm-hmm. people to place, um, which is yeah hard to talk about in the context right now of, of, of these fires on Maui. But What's going on? Yeah, we get, we go into that as well, but it's really, I just love Katie's perspective, kind of her openness and her appreciation for patience. You know, she really, really believes, I think, it comes out of this interview that everybody has um, something to give, you know, has a capacity for for like really deep care for these the place yeah yeah and what's really cool is if you're connect, if we're connecting it back to dr merlin's interview last time you know who he if you recall for those of you who listened he talked about sort of like pacific island folks and that intimacy with the land um we're bringing it home here to hawaii and talking more specifically um about katie's research and you know as she said you know how to check in with yourself about what you have to give and then then looking outward from there um and connecting with people in place yeah she's got a gift to like personalize this you know we we yeah yeah. have a especially coming out of from like ecosystems and that kind of western science scientific lens that you you don't get taught how to kind mm-hmm. of ground or to understand its positionality right that's like the term for it but like you don't really you mm-hmm. aren't really taught about how where you're coming from shapes your view on these things as well as your own relationship to your work and to the, these mm-hmm. you know if you're mm-hmm. studying organisms whatever it is and so i think that yeah. um so we all have relationships yeah. to these these things that was those of us kind of doing this kind of work yeah so we're going to get into that and we're going to talk about the the fires on maui and we're going to talk about many other things too 
Um, so with that, we'll introduce our next guest, Dr. Katie Camelamella, professor at Arizona State University. You're our first peer. You're our first like uh, yeah, person who's like yeah. in our age range. Yeah, everybody who we've been interviewing in the Kupuna. Yeah, um, it's all been like mentors till now. Yeah, yeah, totally. Bridging. bridging. So we can talk. We can talk about what all the kids are saying oh, on TikTok. No, that's cool. That's cool. I just, I just want to wrap with some homies about <laughs> what's been going on. So yeah, because uh, yeah. it's. Yeah, because you guys um, been doing the work, you know, unseen and still doing the work. I saw people post about like Nakalai Va'a did some wildfire management yesterday, clearing trees around their area. So like, I think it's, you know, it's hard to prepare for something you don't think is a threat until you see it um, happen, unfortunately. So yeah i'm glad the the connections are being made and there's data for it lots of data (laughs) all this time yeah lots of that well it already is a state change we'll see how much that starts happening at the um big picture stuff right with like real where are the resources and i you know i've been Mm -hmm. thinking a lot about this just the past year like before this event of just like we lean so hard on community here like community-based this and that everything right and and because it is strong and where you live and the people you live around i keep running into this like contradiction where i'm like how far can that take us right like like how far can we go and because what i see is it like the strain and the burden goes on to these like spark plug dudes and guys and girls like the the people that are like such these strong leaders and so much falls on them in that context and i yeah i just i even worry in the context of what's happening now on maui where like these guys are stepping up so strong to take care of each other is it going to erode trust in like government in the state right where the state to actually come in just talk about fire the scale of the threat it is going to require like major investment like this is something we're talking about that yeah. you cannot rely just on volunteers and and we're and what clay and i are like having these conversations with folks you know like figuring out like what the barriers were like where is agriculture and all of this department of ag where's adc where why are the incentives so so not there to get people to farm what are those barriers how can we highlight you know the work that folks are doing to try to change that you know and that's like so it's kind of beyond too it's like such a big picture thing and yeah it's such a big picture thing and we're just we describe the fuel situation again and again and again and then like clay and i get together and we're just like it's it's hard (laughs) that's where we're at no, nah, I think I think you did the right thing in writing when nobody was reading and talking when nobody was listening. I think that shows the character that's necessary to do the work that's being done. And also, um, sometimes the community chooses you. I don't want to make like, you know, pick me, pick me. But sometimes and I feel like I was chosen by my um, past best friend. She saw something in me. And um, she she was like, no, we're going to do this. And so sometimes that happens and it's very fortunate. And so also be on the lookout for people who are trying to give you a leg up. Um, sometimes it looks like rash. But um, if you keep coming around, people will notice that, you know, 
you're really there for for the reasons that are right. We're going to talk to folks, lay the groundwork, talk about water policy with Jonathan Schuer, talk about climate with Tom Jambaluka, talk with you about all of your perspective, talk with folks on the ground doing the work and for the purposes of the show. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I guess we're profeshi now. <laughs> yeah. Out of the grad lab womb. Yes. Into the real world. Out of the frying yeah. pan. Yeah. Into the fire, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. As the saying goes. We can shout out Tamara Tickton. So that's <laughs> yeah. the womb. That's the womb. That's kind of weird. <laughs> can I ask the first pre question? How do you two know each other? <laughs> I can't remember what year you started with Tamara. I was actually Tamara's first grad student. She like yanked me out of the hat. It's like my all my street cred comes from now is her, right? <laughs> Here because everyone loves her. Yeah. Everyone loves Tamar. She's so lovable. I did my master's degree there in Bonnie. And Katie, you did both, right? Masters and I did everything. Everything. I oh, see that's undergrad, masters, and PhD. And then I did undergrad in Hawaiian studies. Okay. Too. Maybe I met you then you were an undergrad. What year did you start graduate school? Um, I, I think I started coming to lab in like two thousand and well, eight. Okay. In 2008, I started going to lab. So it would have been after then, because I think I finished there in 2000, no, five, 2005, I finished my master's degree. Anyway. I think you came back from like, did you do, did you do work in Australia though? Yeah, I did my PhD in Australia. So I was doing fire ecology so, stuff there. Dr. Katie, tell me about meeting Clay and, and just, and just about, um, yeah, about, about your academic background and your work for people who aren't aware when you get into a grad um, program a post a post undergraduate program in the sciences you have a thing called a lab which is led by the lead scientist or the professor that's part of the university and so we were in Tamara Tickton's lab the focus of that lab is really amplifying sustainability ways to live with the environment, like while harvesting for cultural and economic like benefits and also like reducing things like wildfires through indigenous pathways like Clay did. When you leave the lab, you never really leave the lab because she always asks you to come back and give presentations and like mm -hmm. updates. It's kind of like her personal thing, but it's also mm -hmm. a way for people to see. So I think I was probably in one of those presentations when Clay came back yeah. um, and I was like, this guy's wild. Um, <laughs> a, a baby probably still um, in the lab and so there's like this little hierarchy in the lab like the further you are in your degree then um, those students end up mentoring younger students so even just presentations or following people along their journey it's 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 been helpful helping out on each other's projects. So if you're doing, you know, Tamara has these like long-term plots that she was doing in the, in Makaha mm -hmm. Valley. Right. So like once a year or twice a year, Tamara has to do like these annual assessments of these plots in Makaha, sometimes Wainaikai, yeah. but mostly Makaha. And so she asked all of her students to come. So we all get in cars and go out with our little clipboards and <laughs> measuring tapes <laughs> and we go measure and count things. And it's just a lot quicker when you have more people. Yeah. And anybody that's gone through the Ticton lab has probably been to that site. Yeah. 
So then it's not hard to get it done quickly because everyone just needs to like get back on the bicycle and. And real quick for some context, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is like a zone of some pretty cool dry forest. Tamara's projects have looked, they've tracked like the populations of a few of these common trees like llama, alahe'e. Um, mm. So you're counting everything from like annual growth on these big trees, so literally like hugging the trees with measuring tape to counting all the seedlings and little plots and, and able to understand like, are these populations stable, right? This is really like on the mathematical side of what Tamara's specialty is. Mm. And then also she has these baseline plots um, helping some of the restoration projects that have been in there, right? So they've done some trials, mm. for example, like what happens if we just clear cut all the guava out and like leave the rest of the stuff? Mm. And what, what comes okay. in? Does it Does it help? regeneration of native stuff does it not and even to this day like she has a student now who's doing little projects to see like you know does what's the impact of rat predation on the seeds and if you protect the seeds can you okay. increase uh regeneration so it's all as like all these efforts to inform like how do we kind of you know support these forests to to thrive and be healthy because they're yeah. getting so yeah, hammered yeah. with weeds out there especially in the YNIs. so clay stepping back a bit um, should we ask the first question or do you want to go ahead and ask? Well, yeah, I want to ask the first question because this is the one I'm like <laughs> being drawn to botany, which is, I don't know how people understand this, but like there's no botany programs like left in America. Like th- it's so rare that there's like a place, a whole program that you can go from undergrad all the way through that you can like study plants hundred percent. Like what experience were those like life shaping where you, you knew that's where you wanted to go? Yeah, I, I think I probably stumbled for sure. I am born and raised on Oahu, but I think I had like a general typical upraising, like schooling and um, I was like a year round athlete. So I didn't really go outside. Uh, my younger experiences like were with my dad and on the big island. Um, the story is uh, he grabbed probably like a guava or like a lily koi and he just like ate it. And I just thought that was the most animal thing I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> oh as God. like a kid who's like, you know, born and raised on Oahu. Um, Eva Beach did have sugarcane lands, but like we didn't live in a plantation village. Mm-hmm. We lived in housing um, across uh, Campbell High School. And then we moved to a house in Waimalu. Uh, to be like closer to town and uh, go to school and stuff. So when I came back, I did get the scholarship and then I was like, oh, this isn't really the place for me. Came back home. My first class, you know, you have to choose whatever. And I was like, what is ethnobotany? Like, what is that? So that's how I got into ethnobotany. And I think I took like Hawaiian Studies 107, which is like the intro to Hawaiian Studies. In ethnobotany, you know, Clay, we have like, or now we, there was this uh, activity that I think Kavika and Amaka made about getting on a va'a and you have all of these plants and like these technologies. Yeah, you know that one, right? It's a pretty fun game. It's super cool. Yeah. So it was that game. And then we had to put all of the plants in like a historical order. And I, it was that moment I was like, oh, you know, I got some stuff wrong, but there's some things I was like, oh, yeah, guaranteed. Like, uh, so then I learned that I was just kind of good at it, good at like Hawaiian. I don't want to call it like trivia or like Hawaii trivia. And then that was also echoed in Hawaiian studies. It was just stuff I just kind of knew. Mm. And I thought that people knew it. So I just kind of went with what I was good at. <laughs> I really liked Tamara in that class. So I ended up getting a job in Wainai Kai. And at the end of that, it was like my um, 
my fall senior year before spring when I graduated undergrad, she asked me to come to lab. And if I'd ever thought about grad school and I was like, what's grad school? I was like, there's school after school. Like, why would you go to school after school? Why would you keep going? Why yeah. would you stay here? Yeah. So then I took ethno-ecological research methods, which is, uh, Melissa, what basically Clay talked about, the different measuring of um, plants and different ways, the seeds, like literally counting seeds in a bucket and <laughs> creating data out of that. So there was this one paper, uh, I don't know if you remember it, Clay, but it's like, it was in the tropics and they were using palms for thatching. And the experiment was to identify if the moon had any impact on the rigidity of, of the palm. And so they found out that when the palm was gathered during the full moon, it lasted like twice as long as palm not um, during like the full moon cycle. And they tracked it back to there's more herbivory on the plant during full moon cycles because the insects are out. And so they release like this extra resource that makes them more rigid and last longer. And I was like, mm. that was dope. What? Oh. Yeah, like what? <laughs> it's cool because it's it is like wow. you know you're learning about these plants through just this really like literally ancestral knowledge. I mean, and you are in it being yeah. in Hawaii, of course. But and I think that what Tamara really brought is able to bring to you where you you learn these things and it's not like you do the research as validation, right? It's not like oh we got to prove that what they know is right. It's really like how do we support those practices? Because what you start showing is the relationship that people have with these plants becomes embedded in how they're taking care of the place that the plants are in, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you kind of yeah. have to, you know, all of this work where she's like, you get down and nitty gritty and you're like counting seedlings or like looking at lignans in a palm frond or whatever. It's like to show that, you know, we have these relationships and they help us, you know, take care mm -hmm. for these places. So Dr. Katie, did you at that moment when you just read that paper, were you like, oh my gosh, how many more discoveries? How, ma how many more things do we need to just dig into? Well, it was just really cool for me to see someone actually be able to explain mm -hmm. with numbers. Um, yeah. Not that people needed to know it, but for awareness of and like, maybe in this point validation of those practices like yeah it's important to do it at this time because the resource will last longer like mm -hmm. people still do that today they buy the more expensive item so that it lasts longer instead of the cheaper item because it'll break and you'll have to replace it but that's also like a preference with people mm. <laughs> uh, so i think it you know when I was an undergrad, I heeded a call from Namaka in Ethnobotany looking for support for the Protect Ho'olawe Ohana. And on my first trip over there, I ended up meeting somebody that would change my life and um, be like one of my best friends. And um, had been with the Ohana for a really long time, um, Kami, Kami Kanoa. Um, she passed away during um, 2022. Oh, man. And so it was her teaching me really through accepting who I am, how to be gracious to other people 
and how to be a good host as well as a good guest. Mm -hmm. I really focus on being a good guest because I am from town and uh, Mm -hmm. I live places and I visit communities. So I'm more seasoned in being a guest, I guess you would say. And there's, there's, there's ways to be a good, a good guest. Um, And so the lab just nurtured that it nurtured Mm. people being who they are. I'm like looking to finish this publication. I just read my acknowledgements for my dissertation and I was like, wow, that's animal. But I acknowledge (laughs) everybody that has helped me get to where I am. And, um, it's just really kind of serendipitous meeting Namaka. And then I started doing what's now known as the pipes program, which is focused on getting local and native Hawaiian kids into sciences. Mm-hmm. I ended up getting this three, four year gig with the department of health, um, doing stuff with the clean water branch and the environmental protection agency and the U S um, GS. So really watershed projects. Mm-hmm. And my mentor, David Penn, was a member of the Protect Kola Ohana like years before I had been. So mm-hmm. when I wanted to go support the Ohana, the Protect Kola Ohana to do accesses, to host people on island, um, he was supportive of that and allowed me space to do that. So my experience as like a Hawaiian scientist, I think is really unique in that the type of support I got was the type of support I needed, mm-hmm. which was just letting me be who I am and be able to support people that valued the skill and the time and, you know, the energy that we're putting towards. I, I feel like you have maybe worked in so many different places and have so much connection to so many places. And I know it's really always hard to choose one or two or three places that are important to you. And you've already described a couple. I'd love to hear more about, you know, one of your most cherished places and why you love it so. It would be Koho'olawe. I think it's more about the people and the experiences and the networks and the resources I've been blessed to engage with um, that is changed how I think and how I view the world, as well as um, understanding that it does take hard work and it does take sweat and it takes a lot of patience with place and people Mm -hmm. to get the vision completed. And we're at that point that we've had some people pass in the last, or many people pass actually in the last um, few years. And so holding that vision, not just for an island, but for a nation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is really important to me. And I think that what I'm actually positioning myself to do is do more work off island than on island. I haven't really been on island for a while. I think my last Mm -hmm. one was maybe two years ago, was it like 2021? But there's a lot of good work that can be done for these places that we cherish, not just Koho'olawe, while not being in place Mm. and, um, and allowing that voice to be heard and just supportive. So it's interesting to be like this, you know, like 
I'm a researcher, but in the Ohana, there are a lot of academics that help to get me to where I am and mentor me and continue to mentor me, considering they're way further along this path than I am. It's really an Ohana and the place is unique and stark and assertive in in what needs to be done. I would say Kiali Kahiki, um, which is the point that turned south. And so Kiali Kahiki, there used to be a lie over there, but it was shot down by the military before I'd been there. And so now there's a platform there, a compass, mm-hmm. um, but there's also, I think I'm thinking of Kianakiki. There's white sand in Kianakiki. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this different side of Koho Olave that you don't really see. Um, a lot of people see the red dirt mm-hmm. um, from mm-hmm. the Maui side and the ridges. And so there's this sandy area over there. And that's where we end Makahiki ceremonies. You walk across the island during closing ceremonies. And so the first time I went, we did the walk down and back. And um, yeah, learn a lot about people after walking like 14, 16 miles together. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, tell us. <laughs> like what? What do you learn? You learn about people's families and where they're from, mm-hmm. um, their goals, their dreams. And so it's a different way to connect with people than maybe we're, we're used to doing because during the ceremony time, usually you're just very quiet. And so you're doing an activity in where everybody's focused on the same outcome, which is greening the island and bringing clouds and Um, being the coolness and bringing those visions back for a forest that can attract the Nu'ulu rain cloud and bring the Lepua back to its presence in Maui Nui. Makahiki is an observance of like the Pleiades being on the horizon and then recognizing the wet season Mm -hmm. and then also providing offerings to different gods that provide those rains and to ask Mm -hmm. for rains for the coming seasons for a bountiful crop. Um, They started over 40 years ago, I believe, on island during the time when the Navy was still bombing with the guidance of the Ilkanako Ole Foundation and the mm-hmm. forming of the Protecto Olave Ohana. Mm-hmm. Those practices continue on island as well as across the, the islands. Mm-hmm. People have adapted them to different ways, mm-hmm. but you usually have ceremonies of more joyful nature. The games are just a way to prepare for harder times, kind of focusing more in on what you're doing at home and taking care of your own ohana. It's hard to, if you haven't been there, just to understand like how badly Koholave needs love in that sense, right? And as far as the rains and the plants and the challenges of, I mean, just from a, like a technical perspective, the challenges of doing restoration on that island and like the work mm-hmm. that PKO have put into and Paul Higashino, like it's like trying to do this stuff at island scale to the extent that they're able to mm-hmm. navigating areas where they still have exploded ordnance, where it's only been mm-hmm. surface cleared and they're literally laying down like seedlings on their side in the soil because you can't actually dig holes and trying to just capture yeah. soil wherever they can. I mean, it is really like starting from scratch over there. Um, it's But how much love and, um, and just patience, as you said, Dr. Katie. Well, and that's like, I feel what it's given back, right? Yeah, like it's still, and it's still giving. That's like the most incredible part of the- In, in the context of talking about the Maui fires, you know, kind of jumping ahead on our questions and, 
that it's just brought to light so many things, right? And you were talking about Kaho'olawe, um, you know, and for our listeners who don't know about Kaho'olawe, the Navy bombed Kaho'olawe for I don't know how many decades, a long, long time, and, you know, uh, engaged in a pretty extensive cleanup, which didn't get rid of all the ordnance. Um, and that, that's a whole other podcast. But yeah. um, <laughs> folks have been, you know, working out there for Kaho'olawe. Ohana and um, uh, Koholabe Island Restoration Committee, um, you know, as Clay said, as, as Dr. Kiki said, for a long time. It intersects with what we've been talking about, actually, from some of the old timers in conservation, which we're like, yeah. remember, we, we've gone back to this back and forth of like, that there was kind of a disconnect that the origins of like, I'm talking, we're talking about like conventional biodiversity conservation, right? And then there's kind of like this cultural disconnect that's been improving let's say that right over the years especially in recent times i think very big big changes where people are saying oh my god of course this is all connected that time you know the hawaiians really were in that context especially like saw where the struggle was right the Mm -hmm. land itself Mm -hmm. right and then maybe the, the rest of it we can take care of after whereas that's why i feel that when you talk about conventional biodiversity conservation it's like people are like why can't we do what we want to do in the sense of like why don't we have the resources why don't we not have the support all that and i i think that we probably need to do a better job of connecting it to taking care of people first this is where i'm trying to like get Mm -hmm. the students at least here in my program to understand that like you know we are all it's all connected back to the the social welfare social well-being of of people Yeah, yeah so like getting to that and and your work katie how can hawaiian notions of place, especially related to food and water, help conventional conservation efforts, um, help people understand that humans are part of the system and that these notions and practices are totally integral to protecting biodiversity, I guess, in that strict sense. How do we how do we bridge those worlds? This is your this is your everyday work, right? Yeah, I think you have to get out there. I think a big part of my work is living the life of the people, doing the collections, making things, making lay, dancing hula, mm-hmm. um, coming from the perspective of those people. I'm allowed to do it at a little bit more extreme level, possibly. But it's accessible to anybody that really wants to know. So mm-hmm. sometimes there's like an entry point of going to a lo'i and right. maybe you start growing stuff at home. And mm-hmm. it's really how the society has been shaped. It's really common to see people parked at parks with or anywhere with their mm-hmm. windows up and the air conditioning on. Mm-hmm. And so inherently people are separated from their environment and are used to climate control, literally. Mm-hmm. And so just getting outside and experiencing or being curious about something, your own culture or a place where you live or anything that peaks your interests will make these things more tangible. That's why when I talk about the relationship with the land, I talk about, think about if you have a sibling or if you have a close relationship with your parent or you have a really good friend or a spouse, when they come through the door from wherever they came from, you can tell what their level is, like where they're at, like what's going on with them. You don't need to talk to them about it. And so my experience with communities is that's the same level of attention and awareness that happens on the land. 
And so it's easy for people to understand that. So creating instances that we don't have to go somewhere and access, but we already have accessible within ourselves, which is the relationships we already have. Mm-hmm. And so if we can mm-hmm. think about walking into a forest and seeing different signals, like I might see a broken twig. And that might not mean anything to anybody, but to me, it'll mean somebody has just been here and they're marking their trail to come back. It's the nuances that you learn the more you go on the trail, the more you uh, contribute to a community, the more you provide service to wherever you want to be a part of. And mm-hmm. so we're, even on social media, you can find people that align with your goals or your vision of what you want to see and you can rock with them Mm -hmm. online um, and Mm -hmm. expose yourself to that information and see what are the steps you can put into action a lot of the narratives around are very disarming for people make them feel like they can't do anything and that's just not true yeah i agree yeah so just getting people back to the place of oh i have this problem i can solve it if i don't know how I can know somebody how to do that if not somebody else will know how and just getting back to that sense of empowerment um, I'm not going to say not relying on money but not being afraid to move forward on addressing awareness or creating relationships um, because there isn't a financial resource to do it where there's a will there's a way and a lot of these entry points don't don't require any money if anything, they require time and attention. Right. So so everyone can kind of, if they make time for it, afford that. Yeah, time and attention. And then, you know, the, then the relationships, right, with the other people that have that shared interest. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess one question would be as far as like work wise, like, I mean, do you see it challenging trying to, because I do, of trying to like highlight the value of that. If you want to get people to understand how they can affect change, right? At the local level. And he's like, you go, you didn't say it explicitly, but the thing that always comes to mind is like climate change and the narrative where, you know, there's nothing to do right. that can lead down a dangerous road where you just, you know, frankly, you can become like a nihilist. <laughs> also that in the work where you're trying to do, again, coming out of the lab that we were in, where it was like very sort of quantitative, right? In that sense that, okay, we're going to like understand this relationship by like, you know, measuring the forest as a, for, for example, but that yeah. even that right. there, it's almost like this cheat code to start telling these stories in that concert, like the conservation biology world, right? It's like, you can mm-hmm. kind of put forward this really robust and rigorous science from the Western perspective and still kind of tell the story, tell the value, which is ultimately like about the relationship. Have, have you found a challenge in balancing those two and still getting pushback? on the relationships. So I guess the biggest data set I had or that I'm still working with is the first analysis of of forest gathering permits for the state. And that was um, honestly my dream project that I thought of a year before they came and approached Tamar to Mm -hmm. do it. And then Tamar's like, you want to do this? Sounds like perfect for you. And I was like, yes, please. It's exactly what I asked for. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. But the data isn't enough because it doesn't, the numbers don't tell us anything or the permits don't tell us anything about what people are using it for or how much is being harvested. Mm. So we had to reinforce with market surveys and interviews with practitioners. And so using the the quantitative to identify where the distribution is happening and where the focus should be, and then using the 
qualitative or the storytelling to help move the narrative is kind of is my process that I've I've used or I use. There's a lot when it comes to forest gathering in Hawaii, cultural for ceremony, not for sale, um, for commercial purposes, things that you'll find in the mm-hmm. market. And so mm-hmm. really just identifying how much resources are coming out and just like the number of species, not the mm-hmm. quantity mm-hmm. of that species, because okay. we're just at base zero. So I did historical research before that to identify a baseline of what we knew before what had been mm-hmm. published in Hawaiian Ethnobotany. And so for medicine, hula, building materials, food, arts and crafts, music, I really hope to expand my lab to help uh, target all those things. How much do you think is not on the permits? Oh, a whole bunch. Yeah, I can imagine. And so the permits are just like what they had available. Right. So that's point. what we use. But the interesting part was um, I hired somebody from Hilo to help me put the permits into digital mm-hmm. form to transcribe them. Mm-hmm. And so that person mm-hmm. actually knew a bunch of people on the permits. And mm-hmm. so what was interesting is that because they were a hula person, they saw a lot of hula people submitting permits. When I did halal, Maya Kumu told me to put in permits as well. It's in some houses and not mm-hmm. others. I believe that there's an overrepresentation of hula practitioners, meaning that mm-hmm. what you're pointing to, Clay, is that more people are gathering. Yeah. The question I usually get is like, well, why should I fill out a permit? And I was like, I totally get it. Yeah. If we like people to take care of resources and put money to taking care of those resources, it's a lot easier if they know about mm-hmm. that. They can manage for things that they're aware of. What we found out just from the state is that most of it, like 99% of the gathering permit that we reviewed came from Hawaii Island. The Waikia watershed and forest is very big and vast. And just the, the process of permits is like a whole a whole different thing. Yeah. Native Hawaiians gathering, but also other um, ethnic groups, um, Japanese community gathering like Karamatsu for Japanese mm. New Year's. Mm. So there's a lot more work that can be done in exploring how all the many ethnicities in Hawaii have adapted to the resources. We identified over like a hundred and 40 plants that are currently being gathered and then like there's an overlap of like 90 of them between cultural resource use and economic Mm -hmm. market so what i say is like the cultural value of a resource will at some level create a market because not everybody Mm -hmm. has access to the resources or maybe the skills to make that product or whatever Mm -hmm. so also just raising the awareness that there is a chain. The only native species found on the market year round is Miley. Mm-hmm. So that's the only one that's year round, like in a commercial area. Like I'm not talking about like coal furniture or anything like that, like non-timber forest yeah. products. Okay. Can I ask a question mm-hmm. about Miley since it's like the only one <laughs> maybe I'm a little bit familiar with? Uh, Miley meaning like Hawaiian Miley or Miley that's oh, Cook Island Miley or what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, all of it. Um, the, the transfer and, you know, because there's like over a hundred plus species, like I only was able to target a couple and like oh, scratch okay. the top mm-hmm. and like not really do yeah. it. It's all <laughs> the basis for like future work that we can do. But yeah, mm. um, there's Cook, Cook Island Miley. Most of the Miley in Oahu comes from Hawaii Island. Um, oh, the okay. person that t- like I talked story with, they used to have come from Kauai, but that stopped a long time ago. And so making mm-hmm. these connections that 
when we're gathering or when we buy Miley, we're actually literally buying Miley like from our forest. There are farms, but those those Miley, I feel, are they're priced appropriately, mm-hmm. so they won't be at the same levels of prices that we're used to. If I'm recalling correctly, your master's work was about around like emu plants. And and I invited Katie to talk to one of the classes. And I think it really kind of blow, blew their minds a little bit about the connection of a local community here that they had to these resources. And also just about how people have different conceptions of like, quote unquote, native, right? Like, what do we think of as a plant belonging yeah. to this place? And for the listener. Uh, Yes, that's for the listener. It's a gunshot. Ah. We get excited when people shoot guns out here doing their jobs. Sorry. Wow. That was a big question. Okay, but uh, emu, for people listening, is an underground oven um, traditionally used in Hawaii, called by other names in other places, a hungi in New Zealand, a pit cook in like Canada, a clam bake um, in New England. Um, just to give you like an idea. And so looking at what type of woods people were gathering to fire for emo, I ended up doing a study between Oahu and Hawaii Island because I figured out that after like 10 interviews, I was getting the same information. So I had to go somewhere else, which Hawaii Island did have different information. And that was cool. But yeah, identifying that mostly people prefer Kiabi wood. We did actually just finish a paper about native views of invasive species. That'll be fun. The basic of that paper, which is what we're talking about now, is some species that are viewed as invasive by government and other places are viewed as resources for practices. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Kiabi is probably the number one resource because it burns really hard. It's available um, in dry areas and not many people have access to hardwood natives. Not to say like people aren't burning guava, strawberry, guava, mango, all these other different woods. I think it was like at least 19 different wow. woods. I don't want to like make it over bigger, probably more, but I haven't looked at that data in a while. So this idea of... And this is how I operate when I work in communities. If a community views tea leaf, quarterline fruticosa, as a native plant, like to Hawaii, I'm like, okay. Yeah. And then I'll write up the report like that because essentially those are the people that are going to be taking care of that land and going to be taking care of their area. So why not include their viewpoint in a plan that they're going to be implementing and hopefully, you know, they see themselves in it. So the idea of... Sometimes introduce species like kiabe, also known as mesquite, <laughs> um, are villainized in scientific communities as being like water suckers and all these other things. And I'm like, that's cool. I hear you. And at the same time, it can also be true that this wood is helping to feed a bunch of people yeah. um, to mm-hmm. celebrate a passage of life. It could be new life. It could be passing life. It could be they achieve something. It could be a marriage. And just because something's preferred doesn't mean it's the only thing. Mm -hmm. But if people want to provide their best, um, my knowledge at this point is that that's one of the main resources. People from here who value this, then it's like kind of my sense there's this, we could come at this from this objective stance of, oh, well, you know, it was introduced. And I mean, I... 
I would debate someone pretty hardcore if they said a Kiave is invasive. Like I, you know, it's not, it's not the one that's run. It's not one of those trees running up the mountain and going crazy, but this idea that, Oh, you know, it doesn't belong. And it's like, there's like zero reference for like where they're coming from. Right. In the sense of like, it's not, it's not even a semantic argument. It's really gets down to if this is providing value to someone and, and, and especially the Hawaiians, that you're you are from this place, and this is a tree that you value in your landscape. Then, uh... yeah, and so there's movement. Um, I'm not going to say like I like getting cabbie thorns in my foot. <laughs> like I'm not saying that at all. <laughs> and there aren't any hazards that they provide, like wildfires. You know, like I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm just identifying that there's a relationship. Yeah. And uh, yeah. so some people, uh, Uncle Vince, uh, I forget the name of his company. But in Waianae, they're collecting kiave beans and turning it into flour so that people can use mm. it and are doing things um, like giving that flour so people can bake with right. it. And he mm-hmm. went back to the motherland of where kiave came from, originally native, and learned from those people. Very cool. Um, so bringing back some of those relational ways of managing resources yeah as well as mm-hmm. allowing new experiences with a resource that we have a very distinct past with is kind of fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. Totally. Humans are so adaptable. The canoe plants are kind of more funny to me. Like a lot of people are yeah. like, don't like kukui. And I'm like, whoa, I'd like kukui better than seeing a lot of other trees that are out <laughs> Do you really still nowadays get that, Clay? People, yeah, there's people that don't like yeah. it at all. Yeah, that's like, oh, it's weedy. And... Oh, because it's like, we're not going to go sink resources into it. I no. mean, come on. It's so much of it from my point of view is like a practical matter of like. Well, it's come up as like um, yeah, potential for like a green strip for like, you know, planting in these fire prone areas. Oh. But, you know, it needs water. But, okay. you know, as and I'm, we're just like, yeah, like try it like see if it goes it's yeah there's far more um aggressive plants out there like i think we need to be maybe more concerned with that cause big big problems as well right i mean you have to like i think like that's also this mindset of like oh you know it's like you can have these arguments if we had unlimited resources and we could like shape the land in any way we wanted to you know but we don't so when i was doing that emo research the manual went missing from the library of course But there was a publication put out either by the territory about the the many uses of Kiave Mm. and like why it's so awesome. Mm -hmm. And so what I was trying to track in my research is like, when did that narrative change? You know, it's it's just really interesting to see how the narrative uh, flows Mm -hmm. back and forth and Mm -hmm. is shaped by I'm not sure who. But I like observing. Yeah, I mean, it's utility, right? It's like it's kind of like this thing that has a use for someone. And so they're going to look at it at having value. And I think that's really where that disconnect is. If you just sort of, you know, it's not to knock biodiversity for biodiversity's sake. But when you come at it from that, it's just a much different relationship. Right. And, you know, you, you have to understand yeah. that, that, that people have different relationships to to these plants. Yeah. And that there's yeah. room for both and that we don't have to ch- necessarily choose and like that the resources are limited. We're not going to go sink, you know, millions of dollars necessarily into go, I don't know what, but I mean, we are worried about things like Myconia. Right. I mean, Albizia, look at Albizia. That one is going to, it's like hammering us. Himalayan ginger in the forest, you know, like 
Yeah. So, I mean, there are places where we want to necessarily like at Malka, you know, so much of that work has been focused on trying to keep those places. We, I did that for so, mm-hmm. so long. Um, and yet, you know, we, it's this establishing, you know, in places that I think typically in conservation, mm. we don't think about. And, and that's where Clay and I are working, right? <laughs> and thinking about uh, all of us, right? And we're thinking about the in-between zones. It's interesting. I mean, even Albizia, like there's places, I got a little anecdote in Pompeii, they call it Albizia chook and kerosene. So pl- kerosene tree, because it burns good. It burns hot. Oh. So they like it for their um, their emos oh. there. Oh, there yeah. you go. So it's a different, another, ah. another parallel. And then they've got these places. There's this one spot um kind of up by where the capitol buildings are it's kind of outside of the main town in palakir and they had these big fires mm-hmm. in t- the el nino droughts in 97 98 and the so there's grasslands there's like savannas there they're small um and but people have been burning them for forever and they they but these fires went out of control it's a really really dry year there and the Albizia had been introduced between like the last time they had a big drought like that. And so these Albizia came in, in the grasslands and overtopped the grasslands. And then the people said, oh, wow, we can actually like start farming here. So now under those Albizia, they're spread, you know, putting in breadfruit and all the bananas. And the, so it's like, again, they just sort of a- adapting to the change. Um, it's still mm-hmm. not really fun to work under Albizia when you get big winds and things like that. It's very scary, but number one forest fear, falling branches. Number one killer, yep. yeah. Totally. We started to talk about it a little bit, you know, like sort of getting out of our respective silos, those of us who are strictly in conservation, thinking about, you know, endemism and rarity and all of that, which of course we want and love and support. And then thinking about, you know, how people value different things at different in different places and and connecting with nature just in the most fundamental way just connecting with the outdoors um i kind of want to hear more about that dr katie that you know like because again you know getting back to the maui fires which have brought to light so many things about the legacy of the land use the invasion uh of the lowlands by these fire loving plants the dry bearing conditions of what were once thriving agricultural places and that fundamentally pointing to just people not caring uh, who own those lands necessarily or those who do care not being able to do enough. Our question is really like, what do you think are the most practical ways to repair this? I think that's important. I think a step before connecting with community is you need to connect with yourself, understand Mm -hmm. who you are, what your boundaries are, like what do you actually want to do? What do you think your talents are? What do you think you can contribute? Uh, understanding what you're trying to get out of the situation. Like, do you have a specific goal of where Mm. you want to be in engaging with this community? Do you have a specific goal about the landscape? And are these the people that are in that same vision or, you know, like, so really knowing what your resources are, because when you come into community, Mm. you don't come as an individual, you come along with whatever resources you have, uh, time, um, physical, material, uh, technologies, all these different things contribute and make what a community is. So mm-hmm. I guess doing like a check inventory stock <laughs> of what do you have going on and 
do you have enough to give even if it's just time does that impact Mm -hmm. you and making sure you can take care of yourself related to the burnout idea is when we continue to give um when we haven't rested enough we may not make the best decisions at that time so being better community means making better decisions means taking care of our individual and ohana units so that when we go out into these larger communities, we understand what we bring as a unit, as an individual, and what we can contribute. Related to like these abandoned lands, like hundreds of thousands of acres, yeah. right? Like a quarter of the landscape in Hawaii. Um, like you guys are talking about monumental effort. Um, I did talk with one of my friends and they brought me back to the grounded space of We did talk about community-based management, and I do see the same people in many meetings representing multiple groups. And the recognition that we do have the talent in the pool to step up in these different places and start uh, mentoring with people, you know, it comes in different ways. Um, so that's part of being part of community is mentorship and mentoring people, being open Mm -hmm. to that flow of information, being open to learning from people who are much younger than you and much older than you, um, and may not have even the same background as you. Um, we, we have like this fairy tale idea of what community work is. And then we get there and we're like, what's up reality? Yeah. Um, (laughs) <laughs> I love that. Tell me more. What do you think? Tell me more about that. You never know who you're going to meet. You never know what their story is or how their story is going to touch you or change your life mm-hmm. or giving without the idea of receiving for some reason seems to be a, a, a far off idea for many people, especially when I talk to media. Um, but it's common, I feel, in mm-hmm. my experience here to do so. And when you have people coming who give with an expectation of receiving, and the key word there is expectation, it'll it'll be a struggle. Yeah. And yeah. when you show up to these community events or you know, you're contributing without expectation, so many doors open yeah. because you're willing to be of service and literally a servant to the people in your network and the larger vision as well as the landscape no matter what you do identifying that that agency comes from you and it doesn't come from other people validating the work that you do because Mm -hmm. if you do the work because you're being validated are you doing the work you would be doing that you really want to be doing and that's your real contribution that you can make is obviously check in with people like don't just roll like <laughs> your homies check it out right black ops <laughs> going in there and just doing whatever yeah 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 so I, I have multiple groups of people that i check with when i'm in a pinch if i need a professional i'll like dig into my mind and be like who can i call for this answer mm-hmm. um to contribute mm-hmm. like am i out of Am I out of pocket here? You know, am I still in my lane? You know, kind of, is this the best way I can contribute at this mm-hmm. time? And there's a lot of different trade-offs for that. If people are doing really awesome in the public eye, their family's paying for that. 
you know, it's yeah. it's an opportunity mm-hmm. cost. And I think we need to be more aware of those types of opportunity costs that, you know, money cannot replace that time, yeah. you know. So it's, it's really something I thought it was like really shallow, but then I keep getting that question, like, how do I volunteer? And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you <laughs> I don't understand the question. <laughs> yeah. But what I really get from that question is like, where can I make the most yeah. difference? And it's, you haven't sat with that question of like, where do I want to make a difference? It's okay not to know, right? I mean, to like, just not yeah. know even what you have to offer. And we did this thing last year, uh, like part of this workshop where we brought in some folks to talk about volunteer programs, right? So the stuff that's going on at uh, Pearl Harbor and then this protect and preserve. And it's like exploding, right? Like the interest in it, the motivation, all the people, like it's like really, really, really popular in that sense. Yeah. I still don't want to take people off the hook. Like we, we, we got to pay for this stuff. So at some point, right? Like, I mean, even all these things, because yeah. I've been in the same experience with fire, like these 2018 fires happened in on Oahu and it was like Armageddon. Like it felt like the whole freaking West side of the islands on fire. I mean, thank God we didn't really, we lost a couple homes like in the, on farmland, but it was unreal. Like three valleys burning at once, like coming around the corner from the South side and turn up. And it's just like smoke, just dumping out onto the ocean, like pictures from like Makaha beach where it just looks like, you know, post-apocalypse, like it was crazy. And then my friends are in the agricultural extension agents and, and you know, how many fire prevention workshops have I done? I don't even know what this, the one happened where it was, oh, hey, like I'm on this zone. You got to come check my farm. I'm doing a fuel break. I got, and we like, and we got sheep and then the next guy gets sheep. And then, you know, and then these guys want to do, and it was like, I was telling you, it's like took 10 years of trying to work with yeah. the people yeah. I knew in Kai, like in that yeah. zone to finally connect and be like, oh, now, yeah, people really are trying. And so you just think about like so much of this land needs help. Pay these guys doing this work, like yeah. pay them a living wage and get more of these, like grow these programs. Like there's so much skill and so much heart and so much knowledge out there. Um you know, and then willing kids coming up that want to do work like that. Mm-hmm. I love what you said, Dr. Kate, about checking in with yourself and like figuring out what your capacities are and intentions are. Like I was so inspired. We said something very early on about, you know, kind of in the right as these catastrophes were unfolding about like, I know my lane. I'm like a social justice warrior, my ass, <laughs> you know, and like get out there and critique right. this. You yeah. know, I'm not necessarily going to be out there like putting out the fire. Yeah. Like I know what I, I'm capable of. And I just thought that was like brilliant because, you know, it's so easy for us to like be backseat drivers and be like, okay, so it's this and that, you know, but like, checking in with like what you're capable of and what where you can critique where you yeah. can lend a hand you know and where you can where are your abilities that's like paramount well i get frustrated too because i don't and i appreciate that also but we're often not critical enough in productive ways what do you think the value is of kind of like helping people frame this and like i mean the maui obviously it's a particular incident it's critical no it's super critical so like you know like i've been sharing a lot of you know the materials from your social media and it also helps me to be like, am I making this up? And then they're like, oh no, here's the GIS <laughs> of the extent of the perimeter of the fires yeah. and the overlap yeah. of abandoned pastures, your lands. Like, no, I'm yeah. not crazy. Yeah. 
I'm not making right. this up. Like there's literally data. Well, I had to make the map for the same mm-hmm. reason, Katie. So I don't, don't worry. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but see, you have the skill set to do that. And then now people can use that and learn and be like, oh, yeah, we're like what my niece is saying isn't crazy. Like, look at this map. Like, you know, it's pretty, pretty easy to read. Mm-hmm. I can see where the fires are at. I can see the amount of extent that's burned. I can see all of these things. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's really critical. um, And that's why I jumped on because I was like, yo, like we got to really, we got to provide some grounding here and, you know, some awareness that like, okay, you do have agency. There are resources Mm -hmm. in this narrative. And then the more people that have that narrative, the less crazy people look like. Um, yeah, because, you know, it, it's also like we're in the pl- post plantation era. See, you guys help me frame my narrative because I do my homework before interviews. <laughs> um, but the post plantation era line that I got from you, Clay, is like people are loving yeah. it because nobody's ever really used it. Um, you got to think about like born and raised here from plantation, mm-hmm. lived around sugarcane, have a certain affection for that because of the memories right and then people telling me that fires are you're like you were telling me fires were happening 10 years ago and i was like yeah (laughs) fires happen there's a shuriken (laughs) and shuriken was dead already so what my experiences provided me to understand was not what was actually going on in the landscape and so i think also providing some grace to the people who live here mm-hmm. that grew up with sugarcane like literally yeah. grew up and yeah. like worked the plantations yeah. the understanding and relationship with fire is different because there's always irrigation somebody was always taking care of it you didn't have to worry about it and like my partner said like plantation style is like, like you don't worry about it the plantation's taking care yeah. of it like but yeah. now that the plantations yeah. aren't here we cannot point to them and be like, oh, they're going to take care of it. Like the wildfires are going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And I'm just providing some grace with that yeah. understanding because it's like. Well, I had calls back in like when I first started, I would get a few calls. You know, so 2013, I think I started this fire thing and fire position right at University of Hawaii. So it's like a program. Like I laugh. It's like, oh, it's a program. It's like, no, it's just like one dude. <laughs> but that idea that I had a conversation with folks on Maui and they're like, can you tell us anything about the air quality? They're cane, you know, burning sugar cane and the ashes falling oh on God. our cars and our houses. And I was like, like, what's the alternative? Right. And then yeah. this is like the alternative that you get. It's like burning under controlled conditions, but you don't have to worry about it coming down on your home. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying we need to go back to sugar cane. Yeah. Like, don't like, don't get me wrong. That is like hard work. It's like high input chemical. Like, it's not like nice to the land. But then they pull out of central Maui and it took a few years. But like 2019, boom, like 25,000 acres, like seven fires, whatever it was like that we could. And this is what they're dealing with, like across the world where you have fire as part of these ecosystems. It's like, you know, you have the fire when you want fire and you know about fire. We'll let you know, oh, we're burning, but don't worry. Or... It's just going to run and go when we have no idea and we're totally unprepared for it. And, you know, again, right. do we burn these places as a way to reduce fuels? I mean, that's controversial here. People have been asking me a lot about that. I'm like, sure, we, but you still need the infrastructure. Like, you can't just go start lighting fires. Like, you need to have, like, right. the roads and the water and all the things that the fire department needs now. Yeah. It's still expensive. As you said, Clay, it's an investment. 
I loved it when you you did um you you did an Instagram reel uh recently, Dr. Katie, about just like, okay, let's explore a little bit about like what happened during the plantation towards the end and then now. Mm. And that was such a great bridge of just thinking through the different values like we're talking about here. I thought that was really brilliant. I gotta go watch that one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really like like how I said, when you learn about Hawaiian history, you learn about the monarchy and then we're in statehood. And I'm like, we're missing yeah, a exactly. huge oh. chunk here. We're getting a whole bunch of people, um, a whole lot of things that help form what we know today. And I still think, you know, just to step back, like yeah. this is during my lifetime. I didn't think it was a big deal. I was in the profession, like mm. um, colleagues giving me crazy eye. And I'm like, well, like, you know, it's just what mm. I know. And so I know things are different now. And so now we need to adjust for that relationship and just providing that grace that within my lifetime, what was it? The last sugar, um, the last sugar plantation was pulled in Maui in 2016 and 25,000 burned in 2019, three years, three years to make that relational adjustment or like understanding actually less than right. So creating this new idea of like, this is the new sugar cane relationship. If we mm-hmm. don't manage mm-hmm. it because there's nobody managing it, there's no irrigation, there's no nobody rerouting traffic mm-hmm. during the burn, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we need to now, as a state, as a county, as a community, be ready to take care of ourselves. And I also use the imagery of like the government being a net. And I said like two inch net. So anything above two inches, you're going to catch. So big fish is, like I said, like urbanization, easy to get to communities, things that are near resources. And then the little fish, anybody less than two inches or smaller communities, harder to reach, rural, are often left out because that isn't the majority of let's go with taxpayers. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. which need to be mm-hmm. responded um, to those needs by the system. So it's, it's uh, you know, the complexities are real. And I, I guess I like to live there because then it's easier than being angry. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I'm indifferent or I don't care, but it's easier to try and just dole out grace and be like, okay, this is a really complex issue. We need to think about it at multiple levels. And the community who... Like my age grew up in the plantation time where everybody take care of the larger is supposed to take care. And I say that like. But do you think when people understand the history that like they're going to get more angry? It's not right or wrong to get angry. I think you need to have a certain amount of fire to keep like saying these narratives because it's easier just to be like, oh, that happened a long time ago. I'm like, yeah, but that fire is still burning. Uh, so it's like you can't, for me, ignore what's going on. I've also had a lot of time to process this information. Yeah. So if people are angry about yeah. it, they should yeah. give themselves the time to process it and make that information work for them in a way that they can understand what's going on. Because uh, mm-hmm. people just tell us what they know and not maybe what we're interested in or what we want to know about that situation. Mm. And that's what makes us peely to or close to uh an action or a vision or a goal. Right. We're not talking about it. And there are a lot of people who have moved here since the closing of plantations that have no idea of what that culture is like, even in a familiar sense and the type of um, loyalty that is given. And I feel like um, 
you know, we, we hear all these negative things about plantations, but, you know, it's, I love me a plantation home. They're cute. I wouldn't be here if it weren't. Right, right. I wouldn't be here either. So at some level, you know, you need to recognize the history that we have yeah. and how can we move forward now that people are more aware under unfortunate circumstances. Yeah. Um, it's been yeah. so trippy to try to, I'm like embarrassed to try to like put that history in a sentence. You know, when you're trying to explain why did this happen? You're like, well, <laughs> the plantation was there, yeah, right? So- like that's kind of even where the people, and then it wasn't. And you're like, well, well, why was that? Why I've been so fortunate, thankful is the word I'm looking for. Thankful for people who've been coming out and articles that have been coming out and explaining what the what the f was there before the plantation because he cannot that's what you really have yeah, to understand yeah. it's not just like oh this is the consequence yeah. of the plantation being taken away like no 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 like the plantation was like there because of all the stuff that happened before and that's like we get into colonialism it's the same freaking lack of imagination i mean you know and horror that happened everywhere else in the world during colonialism like it's the same process it just happened so again history is really the the weapon to understand all of this it's the, it's the only way yeah. to understand. Yeah. Historical ecology is where it's at. That's right. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Dr. Katie, we've kept you for so long. Too long. Oh my no. gosh. We could just great. keep going. Is there anything more that you want to talk about? Yeah, just thanks for having me, you guys. It's been good fun talking story. I feel like there's just like one of us everywhere. <laughs> and so hopefully <laughs> through these talk stories. Um, you get more. Yeah, we'll get more in. You know, I think each of us would have and are still finding our ways to deliver these messages. And if people are interested in these types of talk stories or research or professions, then go for it. And um, it'll find you. It's kind of weird how that happens. Yeah. If, if you're yeah. aligned with what your your mission is, doors just kind of start opening and um the more clear you are of the vision you want to see the the more doors will start opening it's kind of wild dr katie camilla Mella, thank you so much mahalo nui for everything you you're putting out you know all of just the empowering messages you know both with you know in in your lab on social media, for those, you know, who who don't do go on social media, please find Dr. Katie Camilla Mella there. She's yeah. wonderful. Um, and um, we just can't thank you enough for, for your time with us today. Yeah. And um, if people want to find me online, uh, I'm at Katie Bam, K-T-E-A-B-A-M. And I don't think I said this earlier, but I'm an assistant professor at Arizona State University in the School of Ocean Futures and a researcher in the Center for Global Discovery and Conservation Science based in Hilo. You read our mind. I know. I know. I, it's so great. <laughs> I was like, I don't think I said that, so I got to do that. It's like the longest title ever, but it's okay. Okay.